Welcome to The Whole Marketer, where we look at the holistic skills, the technical skills, soft skills, leadership skills, and personal understanding that marketers of today need to grow the brands and businesses of tomorrow. We're here to ensure that marketers feel supported and empowered to have successful and fulfilling careers and lives as a whole. Hello, and welcome to The Whole Marketer podcast. Today's podcast It's on high-stakes leadership, and shortly we will welcome today's guest, Sally Henderson, onto the podcast. But before we do, let me tell you why we are talking about high-stakes leadership today. Often, there will be times in our careers when we are having to lead during a time of significant change due to markets, internal ownership, financial difficulties, crises, or much, much more. These additional pressures impact us personally, but also our ability to continue to effectively lead and motivate and empower your team especially during these times when the stakes are high. My aim through today's podcast is to introduce you to the concept and the role of leadership when the stakes are high. And today's guest will do just that. Sally Henderson is a straight-talking Yorkshire woman who creates high-performance senior teams and leaders that excel within the world's biggest brands and world-class creative agencies. As a high-stakes leadership mentor with over two decades of experience, she empowers senior C-suite executives from the likes of Nestle, NatWest, and Coca-Cola to reach new heights. As a serial entrepreneur, she faced challenging leadership decisions, felt the fear, and did it anyways. Sally founded her global leadership mentoring practice in 2011 on the fundamental belief that teams and leaders shouldn't have to choose between being effective or being happy at work. In addition to her proprietary leadership development program, The Real Method, Sally offers brave, bespoke leadership mentoring so her clients achieve their leadership and career ambitions when the stakes are high. Sally, welcome to the Whole Marketer podcast. Thanks for having me, Abby. So pleased to be here. So as you know, we always start with a big juicy question. And today's big juicy question is, what is high performance to you? Yeah, I must admit, I did a breath in when I read that. As the first question, the honest answer came to me is, do you know what? It's dependent. I think the danger with high performance is trying to make it same, same for everybody because it it means different things to different people at different stages of their career, leadership, family stage, and where a business is at. So I think it's really healthy to actually go, gosh, what is it to me personally? So that's where I went. And what it means to me personally is it's when your emotions, your beliefs, and your actions all align. And ultimately, it gives you two things which sound very simple and obvious, but I think are actually at the crux to high performance, which is when you're happy and when you're effective. And that those two things are not and should not be mutually exclusive of one another. They can coexist very well. So what I'm hearing is high performance definition is personal to you and is about when you are in a space or zone where you are happy and effective and you're happy and effective because your emotions, beliefs and actions are authentic to you. Is that fair to say? Yeah, authentic to you, but that you actually are aware of them. What gets in the way of high performance with that happiness piece is people's you know, inner critic. I'm not going to use the word imposter syndrome, although I have to say it because it's so overused. But often when I'm talking to my clients who are all the most incredible high performance senior leaders, amazing careers, in the fast lane, loving life for all accounts. Once you dig under that surface, you often find that their emotions are not really aligned, that they're things they're not happy about, things that they are hanging on to from their past, and they're masking. 
Now, not all the time. You know, I'm not all about going and find where the bodies are buried. It's all about how to get the best and make them better. A whole messy combination of our whole worlds. What's imprinted us in our family situations, our early careers, our relationships. You know, it makes who we are as a leader. It makes how we show up at work. And the beliefs that we carry, which often are on a subconscious level, can be really sabotaging. I'm not good enough. I'll lose all this. If I relax, then it'll be taken away. If I don't work 24-7, I won't be successful. You know, all these classic cliches, but Mm. they do happen for people. So you can be technically very successful on the outside, but to me, that's not truly high performance unless it's, again, I am the queen of cliches, you'll find this out, Abby, (laughs) unless you're truly happy on the inside. I couldn't agree more. And for me, what's fundamental to having that happiness is the self-awareness and personal understanding about, as you say, who you are, what you bring to the world and the acceptance and acknowledgement of that. There is a space around also understanding what drives you, whether that is historic beliefs, the experiences that you've had that show up in you, positive or negative. And mm-hmm. I know that positive and negative is you know, a very hard way of describing it. There's a whole spectrum of how they show up for you. And then there's a piece around accepting all of those things and owning all of those things so you can be happy married with an environment in which you can thrive. Does that sit with you? Totally, because I don't believe you can be a good high performance leader if you're stressed constantly. Mm-hmm. You know, if your cortisol's off the scale, if you're living on adrenaline, if you don't have any nourishing relationships in or outside of work, because you're so focused on being, you know, this goddamn high performer, but you're not actually, you know, and, and who are you doing it for? So I think, again, high performance is most powerful when it comes from your own drivers. You know, you're doing it because you truly want to, not because you think you need to. I have a big saying when I'm doing my work and I do motivational speaking, I get people to say the words need and want out loud. A lot of my time, my clients will show up saying, I need to do this, Sally. I need to get that done. I need to do need, 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 need. And need to me is demonstrating when someone's in what I call away from energy. So you're being motivated by fear, worries, doubt. You know, you've got to keep yourself one step ahead of them, which are incredibly motivated to get done, but not in a very nice way. And if you say the word need, and if people listen to this podcast, just try it and say the word need. Notice what happens to your voice and your face. And you should be noticing in my eyes, it tightens, your jaw tightens and your face looks a bit of a grimace, actually. And the actual sound of need isn't very nice. So when you're saying I need to do something, you're not aligned. You're not coming at it from that happy place to sound a bit trivial, but it's true. It just is bloody true. But when you want to do something, again, if you're listening to this podcast, just try saying the word want and see what happens to your face, how it feels and how it sounds. Your whole face is softer. It's open. And the actual sound want is much nicer than need. So if you can get yourself in a want place, around high performance and showing up as a really exceptional leader and role model, whilst being kind to yourself, you're in what I call towards energy. You're truly focused on where you're going, what you want to achieve, and you're using the right strategies and tools consciously and subconsciously to take you there, not take you away from something that you fear. And that to me is the fundamental switch point in high performance for it to be those things of happy and effective. When you're talking about need, it made me think about boundaries. Uh, or setting expectations almost in the sense of this is what I need from you as opposed to more around the space of what I need or I need this in order to thrive or what I need from you in order for this to work is x it 
took me to a boundary space as well. Yes. I think the way that I focus on it initially is the boundaries with yourself. And we get in bad habits and we'll always take the shortest road to an outcome. And high performers are often driven by fear, which what makes them so bloody motivated (laughs) because fear is a very powerful thing, but it doesn't allow you to be relaxed and happy. And also it doesn't allow you to ever reach your goals because if fear is driving you from the inside and your boundary with yourself is not checking in about, well, hang on, what's driving me and for what reasons? And am I actually happy with that? You're never going to achieve success. There's a classic with my clients. I'll say to them, what does success look like to you? Because they're already bloody successful. And sometimes they'll just rattle off a load of stats. And I will go, one person in particular, a founder, great global business. I remember it specifically. And I said, oh, that's really interesting because he had these stats so ready. (laughs) And I said, just ask, let me ask you a question. Where does that come from? That definition of what will make you feel, finally feel successful. He literally was like bowled over. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, where does that definition of your success, what will finally enable you to feel like a high performer, where does it come from? And he had to really think because he actually didn't know the answer, even though he had these stats so ready to roll off his tongue. And he realized it came from back in a certain fundamental part of his life. I won't give, you know, obviously you might be listening to the podcast, so I'll keep it very open, but because he's in our world. He said, oh, yeah, he realized it was not his definition of success. It was what he thought other people expected of him, which he'd never even realized before. And then once he had that sort of you literally a eureka moment in the session with me, you could see it and feel it. I said to him, because I would bet everything I have that when you hit those stats and you're perfectly capable of hitting all those stats, you know, headcount, EBITDA, you know, office locations, turnover, all that kind of stuff. I said, you won't be happy because that's not what you truly want. And he went, you're absolutely right. (laughs) But he'd been driven by fear that he wasn't good enough. He's been driven by other people's definition of success. Yes, that he had put on himself because yeah. he just didn't know what he actually wanted. And once you do realise what do you want and for what reasons, and is it truly what you do want or someone else's version, it's two things. It's incredibly liberating. But it can also be incredibly fear-inducing because you think, Christ, what now then? If it is my decision, what does that mean? But I think when people go through that process and they understand what does high performance mean to them truly in their own definition of that, not societies, not family, not friends, not colleagues, not the industry, not awards, but just what it means to them. And does it truly motivate them? That's something very powerful to spend time investigating and investing into understand. Because once you get that clearer, everything else is easier. It's the power of personal understanding. And I think the fear kicks in. And I wonder if this is the same of what you discover also with your clients. The fear then kicks in with when you realize you have to do something about that. Ah, well, there's the difference. If it's fear, it's never going to be that great. You have to make the conscious switch to excitement because the physicality, the physiology of your body when you're in fear or excitement is pretty nigh on identical. It's the messaging that interprets, are those butterflies great or or not great? Is that tension in your shoulders exciting or a burden? If you interpret those physical signs as positive, then you can move forward much better than if you are fear-led, again, you're always going to be tense. And nobody makes a great decision when they're tense, let's be honest. No, so very true. So very true. So thinking about those high-performing leaders that have happiness and effectiveness and the personal understanding that gets them there, what skills and behaviours do they possess or demonstrate to their teams? Again, I don't want to be too blanket with this because I think the beauty about being a high-performance person is doing it your way. But what I see commonly is... The skill around communication, Abby, 
which might sound bloody obvious, but the lot of work I do is with the bloody obvious because people get to C-suite level or extremely incredible career track record. And then the dangerous thing happens. People start to make assumptions about them, that they've got this toolkit under their belts because of where they've got to. And people start asking them the obvious questions. How do you feel about communication, for example? Is it something you enjoy? Are you good at it? Skills and behaviors I see coming from high performance leaders to create high performance teams is always underpinned by brilliant communication. I don't mean just the technical art of presenting, but communication takes a lot more than technical skills. You have to know your story. You have to know how to enroll people. And you have to know, especially after the last couple of years, how to keep people on track when everything else is going mental. (laughs) You know, we shouldn't forget the COVID years. They're not that far away from us. The things that set up teams for success and teams that floundered and failed, I believe you can strip it back to that basic art of really fantastic communication. And a lot of the times high performance leaders don't communicate well is because they're not connected with themselves. And these two questions I ask my clients around how are you feeling and how are you feeling really? Because I get to ask that with no agenda. Mm. The more senior you go, the more agenda people have. And it's not as easy for you to talk about yourself. But also my clients often can't answer this question, which is, Can you just describe your job to me? Because when's the last time a CEO got asked to describe their job? Everyone assumes that CEO is utterly clear on their job. You might be shocked to hear that when I ask CEOs, do they have a job spec? I don't mean a HR, no one fire me document or sue me. You know, I mean a proper, agile, modern, effective, motivating job outline of what is the difference between good, great for that CEO at that specific point running that company I would say 9.9, if that can be a statistic here, people don't have that information. Just think about that. Nearly every CEO that I work with does not have an accurate, up-to-date understanding of their job. And when I go to ask them that question and they start to communicate to me about their job, their voice tone goes down, their body language shifts, and often they sound bored because they're trying to remember something that isn't up-to-date or isn't something they have in their consciousness. So how can someone effectively communicate the vision, the leadership piece, if they don't actually have that internal dialogue around how to communicate what their job is, but most importantly as well, what it isn't? So communication to me is an absolute critical skill beyond the technicality of it that sets everything else up for high performance. And building on that, because you cannot have the rest of the skills and attributes I'm going to talk about if you don't have great communication, trust, respect, healthy debate, and diversity. You know, diversity is a word that gets overused, but it's so important to have it as a genuine commitment in high performance, because diversity is what makes teams better, makes thinking better, makes relationships better, but only if they're underpinned by fantastic communication that has fostered trust, respect, and healthy debate. I couldn't agree more. Diversity is so important, that diversity of thinking and viewpoints within a team. What else is really important in developing high-performing teams? And is that mutually exclusive with a high-performing leader? Well, I don't think you can have a high-performing team if the person leading them isn't a high-performance leader, because the two, I believe, do go hand in hand. Because if the leader isn't on their A-game, and I mean that from a sustainable point of view, not relentlessly questing for it and Mm. on the cusp of burnout. But the leader sets the tone. If they're good, they're setting the tone for everything. But equally, that applies if they're bad, you know. And I used to be a headhunter previously in my former career. And so often people would want to leave a company. It's that cliche, isn't it? They don't leave a company, leave leave, leave leader. And a great leader is able to lead their team because they worked on themselves. They're comfortable in their own skin. They don't fear hiring people better than them. 
They're not frightened of having those difficult conversations and making tough to get tough decisions fast. People fire people too slowly at C-suite level, I think. And also too quickly. It's a real dichotomy because people often can go, oh, God, got it wrong. Better get out quickly without giving people the right tools to set up for success. Or they go, God, I'll, I'll lose face if I do fire this person. So, you know, we'll keep them forever because I don't want to own up to my mistake. It all comes from those decisions made by that leader in charge in the first place. So, yes, to have a high performing team, you have to have a high performance leader in charge. But underpinning that, what I would say that everybody has to have in place, which makes either the leader or the team high performance, happy and effective. And it's not to sound trite, because I'm aware some of this can sound really like, oh, that's all nice on a podcast. But it's what I see out there in the real world, especially in the market conditions. You've got to start with kindness. I think in this world of work at high performance, it's incredibly critical. We are our own worst critics. And that kindness has got to start with the self-chatter. Often I'll say to my clients when they're berating themselves and being very hard on themselves, and I do it to myself as well. We all tend to do it as human. But I said, gosh, if people could hear how you speak about your own achievements, your own needs, your own boundaries or lack of, would you be proud? Would you speak to anybody else in your team or in your family how you speak to yourself? And if you could let anyone just dial into your brain and hear how you speak to yourself, would you be comfortable? And often the answer is, well, absolutely not. No. <laughs> so they're aware that this self-chatter is not kind. And I don't believe you can be a high performance leader without really embracing kindness, especially in today's world with so much stress and uncertainty and years and years of difficulty that people have overcome. To some people like the ultimate horrific difficulty around loss and family illness, et cetera. The world's been bloody, bloody, bloody tough. And therefore, I think just empathy and kindness are easy to dismiss when you're looking at economic turbulence. They come to the fore more when everyone's in the boat together through something like COVID, but when it becomes more survivalist with difficult market conditions that we're in at the moment, kindness can go out the window. And that to me is the first thing that will unravel high performance. Self-chatter is the second thing I talked about. And then that high performance comes from support, you know, truly helping each other. The best teams I've seen at high performance have one thing in common. They have each other's back. They're in it together. They have their own needs, their own agendas, their own divisions, their own part of the business, be that geography or discipline or whatever. But they are a team. You know, they believe in the whole piece that they're working together as a senior leadership team. And that only comes with a great top, either trio of leaders or one core leader or co-leadership. It all comes from the top. It all comes from that leader. And as I'm listening to you and also from the work that I do working with marketing leaders, and a lot of the work I do is actually allowing them, having now arrived in leadership positions, to define their own authentic leadership style, not the style that they feel that they should because of the culture or what they believe others want them to be as a leader. And they only have the experience from either who's managed them or led them before, whether that was a positive or negative experience. They end up having this disconnect between who they think they should be and who they want to be and not necessarily taking the time and headspace to have that personal understanding about who they are and what they value and what drives them, what their beliefs are, but also what type of leader that they want to be. And then how does that show up practically in the day to day? And what I'm hearing from you is something similar in that in order to be a high performing leader, you know, you need to have that personal understanding. You'd need to be able able to understand your beliefs. And as you said, that self-chatter that's going on within you, you need to be able to communicate. In order to be able to communicate, you have to have clarity of thought and be a visionary and think about what it is that you want to do and what it is that you want to bring for your brand, for your business, for your team, as well as being kind, which comes more natural, let's be honest, for some people than for others. Yeah. 
whilst also for many people in a high pressured environment with lots of things on their plate, what do you think leaders need to have in place as a human, as an individual, in order to have the resilience and strength to be an impactful leader today? It's a great question. And one I think that we overlook too often in the rush to get stuff done <laughs> at high performance. But it comes back to a point we were mentioning right at the beginning of our chat, Abby, which is around boundaries. Mm. I gave a talk to the IPA recently around my beliefs, don't bring your whole self to work, which might sound a bit controversial. And I'm not meaning don't be authentic or don't be who you are. But personally, I believe that the boundaries between work and home have just become totally removed. And you're meant to be all things to all people at all time. But I have a personal belief that work and home are different. And that's beautiful and wonderful and should be cherished and nurtured and celebrated. Because I say, look, if I'm the same with my closest friends and family as I am with my colleagues who I'm not even mates with, isn't that a bit weird? (laughs) The whole tribe and norms and deviance and codes of conduct and what's acceptable and what's not acceptable are different in different social settings. And when you're with your friends and family, that's different to being around the board table. (laughs) And that's great. Why are we now thinking, God, no, just work-life blend and it all has to be harmonious and just, you know, be yourself. And to me, that's just exhausting because it means that every part of your identity is on all the time in case you need it. Whereas I believe those boundaries to set yourself up for high performance is to know what is your personal identity. It's a tool I have from the real method, my program called PIPI. Very simply, personal identity, professional identity. And you are that whole person across those. But there's sometimes when you might take something from your personal identity to help you in your professional identity and vice versa, but you're creating a beautiful space between them. So for example, if I was chatting with a client who happened to be a parent, I'm a parent too. So that's something I can call in to support. But equally, if my client isn't a parent, they're not interested in that. It's not something that's relevant to that part of my identity, my being, isn't that appropriate for that conversation? So I think boundaries around who am I in and out of work without putting on a mask, none of that old stuff, but just the permission that you don't have to be always on, that there are boundaries between home and work, and that's healthy. I mean, I I say one of my lines I say when I'm doing this talk or this webinar is I say, let's be honest, your family, unless something's gone very awry, should never fire you because of a spreadsheet. Yeah. And they're going to look at a spreadsheet and go, God, you know, you're so sorry, but you can't be part of a family anymore because we just haven't made enough this year. So the rules of engagement and decision-making between family and work, and I don't believe work can ever be a family. It can't. You can have close relationships, you can have great bonds, you can have great connection, but it always will be a company because I have to make decisions based on a company's performance, different to how a family operates. And that's great. And I want us to celebrate that more and be comfortable with those boundaries to say, yeah, when I'm not in work, I can put certain parts of my identity down so my brain is just not overwhelmed. That makes sense. And it links to something that somebody said on an earlier podcast episode, which was, we need to be able to feel safe to bring our whole selves to work, should we choose to. Yeah. And I think that choice around how much you bring is up to you. Because we know that relationships are built on vulnerability, being your authentic self or moments of where you're having to kind of show your true self doesn't mean you have to do it consistently. And also, I'm just thinking about a client recently that had shared that then had a vulnerability hangover, as Brené Brown calls it. (laughs) 
And that then was impacting on how she was showing up and performing. But I think for me, all of that combined is interconnected to that personal understanding, which is how comfortable are you with sharing who you authentically are? How much do you feel that you are happy to share in order to build those connections and relationships, but not be in a space that you then feel vulnerable afterwards? And then that has a negative impact on the way you're showing up in any space of your life. 100% agree, Abby. And I think it's like anything, things come and go in fashion, don't they? And in appropriateness and things evolve. And I'm a 100% champion of yes, vulnerable, yes, be open, yes, be honest. Of course, you know, that's at the heart of everything that I do as well. However, I think high performance leadership comes back to also knowing where that line is. And people like to follow certainty. It's human nature. (laughs) Lack of certainty scares people. So a leader who is constantly opening up, constantly being vulnerable, can just tip those balance of scales far too far the other way, Mm. which then creates a lack of trust and uncertainty because there's too much vulnerability in the air. So I'm not saying don't do it, not, not at all. I'm just saying be conscious of what's your motivation for doing it and who's benefiting from it so that you won't have that hangover piece and worry about it. That's my point around great decision making. And when you're in a stressful place, that's not always going to be happening. And leaders are, of course, they're human. They're allowed to be vulnerable. We all are. And that's a healthy thing. However, there's boundaries. And I think included in that, I was chatting about this with people recently. I also think the role of the employer has got a bit distorted personally. And I've been an employer. I've had my own businesses. So I've been in that seat. And I think, yes, an employer wants to be kind and compassionate and do their best. But there's a line. There's a line where the role of the employer stops and the role of friends and family take over. And I think we've kind of lost that boundary as well of understanding, well, is that the employer's responsibility? Is the responsibility of the employer for the entire well-being in that person's life? No, they're an employer. (laughs) They're not a spiritual guide. They're not a doctor. They're not a counsellor. They can make access to those things. But I think for those people who also own businesses, there's also, I think, a healthiness to go, look, this is what we can provide as an employer. And this is what we can't, which marries in with a personal and professional identity. And I think there's no, again, I know this could be a bit contentious sharing this, but I just think if it's done well with kindness, with intelligence and making sure it's fit for purpose, and it's not coming from a place of cost cutting or just not caring or treating people like commodities and not informed. But I think it's a healthy debate to be had. And I would use that word debate. I went to the Talent and Diversity Conference by the IPA a few months ago and they chaired a debate about has the advertising industry lost its mojo to the younger generations? And it was just so amazing to listen to a really wonderful debate. So I'm like hoping that some of these thoughts where they are a bit more perhaps polarizing or black or white will not be like, oh, my God, that's terribly, that's wrong. That person doesn't care, but will actually provoke. Oh, great. So what is the role of employees? We have a debate about that. What is it for us right now? And what is it not? You know, what are my boundaries and what what are they not? And to actually enjoy working that out rather than being fearful of having difficult conversations. What I'm hearing is all of those things need psychological safety. 100%. To have a culture where you can speak up and you can have those healthy debates. And I suppose what I'm hearing is there is a piece of work that needs to be done around how do we look after our employers? What are those policies or those things that we have in place? But how do we also create a place where they can be themselves and have that diversity of thought, but have that real clarity about what we provide and what we don't provide? Like what's on us and what's on you? Yeah, I think that's so ambiguous at the moment, Abby. I think I think it is so ambiguous. And I think you know, coming out of the pandemic, there's a lot of people that are going through moments of reflection and moments of realisation. And, you know, burnout is higher than it's ever been in our profession. 
but what are we doing? Because I think there is a little bit of what's on me, what's on you, but there's also a little bit of let me look after you a little bit or at least guide you and develop that personal understanding in you when you're not noticing where you're heading. And I say this from reflections in a recent blog I wrote about burnout, which is it is a contentious point because we're banding figures around the highest burnout rates that we've ever had. But what are we doing about it? And that is on the individual to look at things that they're noticing in themselves, but it's also on their employer or their peers or their colleagues to notice when motivation lacks, energy lacks, all of those signs are there because we do need to look out for each other. And I think that for me needs to be built into the way in which we operate as teams and businesses moving forward. I 100% agree. And I think it's also okay to have a range within that. You know, because people want different things. Company culture comes from different people, different values, different alignment. And obviously we want those to be healthy always. There's nothing worse than a toxic culture, crikey. There's no place that in the world in my book. But it's also okay for not everyone to do the same. As long as people there in that culture, in that business, in that leadership team, if it's setting them up for high performance, that's what matters. You know, that back to that piece around happy and effective. Mm. And that means different things, you know, right back to the beginning of our talk together. What is high performance? Well, it's dependent on who you're asking at what stage and what their definition is, what their needs are. And I think celebrating that difference in companies and in leaders and in teams and in services, that's what makes the world richer. The difference, celebrating it, supporting it, but also tolerating it and not judging everyone by your own needs. So true. You know, high performance, high support. Utterly. On that note, actually, I I say, you know, again, I said I was a queen of cliches, but for me, high performance, you can equate it to that world of great athletics, athletes who are Olympians. They would never be that level of Olympian unless they had the right support. You know, they could be the best talent in the world. They don't get access. This is when we talk about privilege and also that difference and the fact that not enough people from all different walks of life get that opportunity. But people don't get to become high performance without support. They just don't because like sports talent, like any talent, cooking, you know, becoming a doctor, any talent around high performance comes with specialist expert advice, like you and I, (laughs) you know, for people coming in to really provide that objectivity, that clarity, that support, and the tools and techniques that can help people to become high performance because they've got the right people at the right time working with them. I couldn't agree more. And it comes from experience, which leads me very nicely, Sally, into my next question, which is, I'd love to hear your career highs and lows. Oh, how long have you got, Abby? How long have you got? (laughs) But in in all seriousness, I'd say my career low came from letting fear paralyze me. So when I was earlier in my headhunting career and in my 20s, and I think you can all get a bit cocksure in your 20s and a bit like, oh, you know, the world's my oyster, but what do I do with it? I was working for a company and I just couldn't decide what I wanted next. And I knew it wasn't just to go work for a competitor, but I genuinely didn't know. And I wasn't brave enough to make that decision for myself. And therefore I sabotaged myself. And I've seen other people do it and I always try and prevent it because it's never the nicest way. So I told the world and their wife, I was deeply unhappy in my job because I wasn't brave enough to take the decision to leave my job because I didn't know what I wanted. And I became paralyzed at indecision. So I would worry about my career and where it was going. And this is back when I was about 27 or something. So just a few years ago now, but it was really, really difficult. And then 
ultimately, because I told so many people how unhappy I was and that I was going to go set up my own firm, of which I had no intention, I got fired because they got wind of this and then they thought I was going to become a threat. So rather than having a kind, compassionate, understanding conversation with me, because ironically, the day I got fired was the day I was going to go and ask to go part time to start learning about coaching. So the whole way it was handled was very, very traumatic, actually. But the biggest low for me was I'd let go of my values. I hadn't been honest. I hadn't had a strong conversation. And I hadn't owned my own shit, basically. And I'd given my power away to other people to make a decision that I knew needed to happen, but I wasn't brave enough myself. So that was the first low. But I would say... The second low that led to the biggest high, interestingly, was when I had the career company, my own recruitment business that I set up and eventually, <laughs> but I wasn't going to do that initially. I did that because I couldn't find anything else that I wanted to do at the time. So about a year later, I did go and set up my own company and I ran that for seven years, but it didn't make me happy. And the irony was I still had that mantra back then. That I believe you have a right to be happy and effective at work. And I thought, well, who's the charlatan? Me. Because although my company was incredibly successful, you know, tick every box, the most amazing talent, the most amazing clients, incredible profit, uh, great reputation, doing it differently, tick, 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 growing the business, all that kind of stuff. I would wake up at 3 a.m. worrying, not enjoying it. And I thought, God, this company's become a millstone around my neck. And although I fundamentally believe in what it does and how it helps people and businesses, it's not for me. I've outgrown it. So I had to make the decision. Well, I didn't have to do anything, but I made the decision with my seven-month-old baby and my husband also working in the company at the time. We together made the decision to stop the company because it was a hungry thing to feed financially every month with staff and office costs and just all the revenue it takes just to keep a company going and to stop it and just to walk away and take the financial equity that was in the business and take that to work out what to do next and closing down a company, making everyone redundant with as much compassion and you know expertise, bringing in the right people, doing it as best I could with my own baby at seven months, having not had the maternity, having no future myself, my husband also be made redundant. That was a real low and I'm killing the one thing I've spent seven years building. Like I literally, when I talk about boundaries and personal identity, professional identity, I made every mistake under the sun around that one. I come from complete experience, hard one. But that was a real low because I was so lost and I didn't know what I wanted, but I knew that I didn't want what I had. Mm. And the only way to change it was I say, look, I would take brave action over stale safety any day. And so that was a huge low to think, God, I've built this company up just to stop it because I want to, you know, not the bank telling me we haven't got any problems. We keep this company going for the 10 years and have a nice living. And I just knew in my absolute bones, it wasn't my destiny, but it was the hardest decision to make. And the most emotionally traumatic, obviously I have to make everyone redundant. I have to say to my clients, like I'm stopping and people are like, why? Because this is going really well, isn't it? And that was also with my first child. So put all that into the mix. And it was, yeah, it was very, very difficult. However, fast forward to today, my career high is this business being a high stakes leadership mentor. I utterly, utterly love it. This is what I was put on the earth to do. I think the privilege I have of working with the clients I work with within, you know, high profile brands, high profile agencies, and I get to mentor and support and guide, influence and advise some of the best leaders out there and make a difference to their world and their happiness, their leadership, their growth, their future. And I just think it's the best job in the world. And so the business I own now, Sally Henderson Limited, you know, the, the high stakes leadership mentor has been an utter, utter investment of time, resilience, keeping going, even when the mountain seemed insurmountable. But the job I have now is my career high. 
I love it. It fills me with joy. I love the challenge. I love the diversity of the people I work with. But utterly, I love the fact that I get to make a difference, which I know, cliche again, but I get to make a difference where it really matters with the leaders who are leading some of the best businesses out there so they can be happier and more effective. And then you have a ripple effect. And that to me is is why I'm here. Love that. And I love how those experiences have also shaped what you offer today as well. So thank you so much for all of your time so far. And I love what you just said around taking brave action versus staying in stale safety. We always finish with the following question. What one piece of advice would you give to marketers of tomorrow? So I thought about this as I have all your great questions. And the thing that came to me, it's simple, it's straightforward, but it has the power to change your life. And it's take action to develop yourself. You heard it here. Take action to develop yourselves. Take the reins, as I often say, of your own development. (laughs) Sally, thank you so much for your time on today's podcast. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for tuning into the Whole Marketer podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do like, follow and share. The Whole Marketer is here to support and empower you and your teams with the latest technical skills, soft and leadership skills and behaviours and personal understanding for a successful, fulfilling marketing career and life as a whole. For support, resources and more information on how we can help you to become a Whole Marketer and build Whole Marketing teams, go to www.thewholemarketer.com.